0: Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Alice Killeen. Alice is founder and managing partner of Stillmark, a venture capital firm that invests in the Bitcoin and Lightning ecosystems. She also serves as a board director of Blockstream and an executive director of the City Fellow Consortium. She joins us today for a discussion about investing in Bitcoin companies. So, Elise, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, let's get started with the place where you started with Bitcoin. What brings you into the world of Bitcoin? How did you get started?
1: Perfect. So, all right, I came into Bitcoin in 2013, Mm -hmm. and I was coming from a background in venture capital investing, and so I had spent the prior couple years looking at infrastructure technology. And the frontier of, you know, sort of what new technologies could offer in terms of value, mostly for enterprise. And so when I discovered Bitcoin, the work that I was doing at the exact same moment was considering investments in the cloud networking space, cybersecurity, data center software, really deep tech concepts that were super new at the time. And so when I came into Bitcoin, when I found it, I found it as an infrastructure first and as an asset second. And so that was, you know, the venture capital perspective taking, you know, dominance over my point of view or approach to the space. And then later, as I got to know the technology better, I I became to understand the asset and how the technology and asset supported each other. And I thought that in finding Bitcoin, it was really an opportunity to do well while doing good work in the world. And there is a whole group of entrepreneurs that think the same. And to work with folks that are as talented as, you know, the developers in the ecosystem or the entrepreneurs are, and that they're mission driven is, you know, you can't pass up an opportunity like that. And so in 2013, when I found Bitcoin, I sort of, you know, quickly went down the rabbit hole and, and went heads down on the tech and what it would mean for our future, our future, both professionally and culturally.
0: What did you do when you got into Bitcoin? What kind of investments did so you got into it? Here's
1: the story. So, okay. Yeah. So I was, I found Bitcoin sort of on accident through entrepreneurs. And so my first ever email that has the word Bitcoin in it is 2013 Talking about to another venture capitalist colleague about you know, we should really get the presentation deck of that Bitcoin gaming company that we talked to. So I don't, I don't even remember who the company is, but this is the email. So we started talking to founders that were talking about Bitcoin. Then, you know, almost immediately after that, I went into a tech co-working space to support one of our portfolio companies to sort of co-office with them and support their development. And just by accident, I happened to sit next to another founder, who was building a Bitcoin company, a simple exchange. So a buy and sell Bitcoin exchange. And he was also mining on his desk. And so I was seated right next to, you know, a hardware dedicated to Bitcoin mining and next to this person who had decided to dedicate himself to Bitcoin. And I was able to learn through osmosis and through, you know, many coffees and, and beers with this guy about Bitcoin. And, you know, this sort of like the hook with Bitcoin is really quick when you have the right sort of advocate in front of you. And I had that in 2013. So that was how I came into the space. In 2013, the conferences for Bitcoin were very new. And so I I would go to these conferences and it would be me pretty much as the only investor there. And then, you know, Bitcoin core developers and entrepreneurs that were just super, super early, like you know the the weird folks um, of their tech community that had decided to take plunge into Bitcoin, and so the culture was just really appealing. Frankly, it was people that wanted to work hard, and like I said a moment ago, that were mission driven, and so they they wanted to take this career risk because they thought that Bitcoin was just that important, and so it was you know it was just a really like pleasant way to spend time. And by the way. We were at such an advantage then because the noise to signal ratio was so low. It was all signal. And so you would go to these conferences and it was just Bitcoin. And it was just, you know, the the discussions were about really the fundamentals of Bitcoin, like security, fungibility, um, decentralization, scalability, all of this. And, you know, it was just, and the noise was really low. And so it was a great time. I feel really fortunate to have come into Bitcoin during that period.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I can uh, imagine. I mean, coming at it from that background is really different from I would say the experience of most people who hear about it as the asset first, you know, they they see the ticker, they hear the price, they hear that it's crashed. And so it's a very different idea. And then they start digging in under the infrastructure. That was certainly my experience. You know, for me that there was this thing that's being uh, traded right now. And uh, of course, you know, you go through several years of uh, being a skeptical smart ass where, you know, obviously you know why it can't work. So that's why obviously you're not going to uh, spend the time and effort to Get to understand how it works because clearly it won't work. So <laughs> that was really so I annoying.
1: got to I got to skip that stuff because I think you know and because you came at
0: it from the perspective of it actually working. Well, <laughs> because
1: in venture capital. I, so I think the right way to do venture capital is to be really humble and to be very comfortable with being never the smartest person in the room because of who you're sort of working with. Yeah. Um and you know I came we're came very- from
0: academia where you have to do the opposite. You have to always pretend totally. that you know what you're talking about and that you have to be the smartest person in the room because everybody else is a child.
1: So that's the kind and of And you, you, you probably you <laughs> probably are. You probably are. But I'm very comfortable not being <laughs> so I talked about being in this co-working space, sitting next to this founder who was also mining. So once I got hooked, what I did was I went to the cypherpunk mailing list discussions, and that's really how I learned about Bitcoin. So I went all the way back to the period before Satoshi released the white paper, sort of read the dialogue and the conversations happening with the folks that frankly had progressed R&D on the concept far enough along that Satoshi could offer and introduce Bitcoin, propose it. I read the next couple of years of discussion. And so I was able to, that was a gold mine. So anyone that skipped that step, at least on the investing side, was really handicapped because just as one example that's easy to understand, one of the things discussed back in 2009 was the need for a second layer of scaling for payments. And so all of the activity around investment and payment companies in 2014, that was sort of difficult to actualize, you know, the promises that those companies were pitching because, of course, Bitcoin Core, um, you know, has some scaling constraints and especially at that stage it did. You know, if you had sort of really done the work to understand what the folks as a group introduced conceptually through Bitcoin you know, you got to see into the future. That was how I escaped the sort of I know better than Bitcoin trap that many people fall into because, you know, I was coming from work where I wasn't able to have the lecture of that thought. But then also because if you go into those cypherpunk chats, you can really see how developed the concepts were even before Satoshi w- w- launched the white paper. And this gets lost a lot in the discussion of altcoins. But Bitcoin wasn't project zero, right? So it wasn't Bitcoin and then everything built after Bitcoin is better Bitcoin. Bitcoin emerged from two decades of prior research and experimentation. And so understanding that history and sort of what went wrong and the way the trade-offs were explored prior, the technical trade-offs is, I think, important or at least advantageous into understanding Bitcoin. And so it was just, it was, I was very fortunate that there was, you know, I was able to learn from all really sort of core signal versus having the distraction of the noise created by altcoins and, you know, all the later comers that might know better, like yeah. you said a moment ago.
0: Yeah. I think this is a very true, I think uh, the majority of people who, come at Bitcoin. You know, that's the first time that they even imagined the idea of there being such a thing as native money. That was certainly the case for me. I mean, internet native money. That was certainly the case for me. In my mind, you know, money is either a government scam or gold. (laughs) There are no other options. There's either the government running its printers or there's gold. And, you know, anything else is going to be controlled by the government. So the notion that there were people building this idea for an internet money just had not occurred to me before then. And so... As you start hearing about Bitcoin, initially, um, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that that thing even could happen. And then you think, well, obviously, that's too difficult. But then you realize, oh, no, actually, well, there's all these software engineers that had conceptualized the problem, understood it, and really distilled it and boiled it down to one technical problem in, in an extremely, extremely intelligent way, which is the Byzantine generals problem. Like, if we could just figure out a way to solve that then we can make an internet native money. And, uh, you know, that's that's not something that you could ever come up with on your own. Uh, You'd need to, you know, it's the work of many, many very intelligent people, hundreds of people perhaps over many decades. So you need to just read it and understand it and figure out where they are at the cutting edge. And then you'll see, all right, well, if they could figure out how to solve that problem, the Byzantine generals problem, then yeah, you could run this thing. And it has a chance of actually working. So what are the implications of that? That's when you yeah. really start thinking about it. But unfortunately, too many people get just as I as I was saying earlier, just too full of themselves. That's just what academia prepared me to do.
1: <laughs> yes. So Bitcoin is easier to understand for folks that have imposter syndrome than for folks subject to Dunning Kruger, right? Where they think that they are you know, perhaps smarter than they are. And so anyhow, it's I love how you just explained it. And I think that's exactly right. The solution to that problem was to introduce the incentive of Bitcoin. And, you know, I think one of the things that Satoshi did that maybe he doesn't get enough credit for was really incentive design of the system. How do you all align the incentives of actors that would naturally be adversaries To some degree, how do you align the incentives of of those actors? That was really what Satoshi discovered, and in reading through the forum posts, you sort of you know are able to discover it with the peers that he had on the forum as he explains it to them. You can understand it in the same way, and so even now, I think going back to that original work is informative, and so I you know I, I often circle back, and it's it's a pleasure to read and that we have that library available.
0: Getting into Bitcoin, you've gotten a venture capital investing in Bitcoin. So what have you learned about venture capital investing in Bitcoin from, you know, having been in that space for so long uh, so far? What that's are a great your, question. Yeah. What, and you know, what are, what have your been your greatest hits? That's
1: it. So the first part of the question, no one has ever asked me before, but I actually think that's like the best possible uh, question to ask. What, have you learned about venture capital through Bitcoin? That's an incredible question. So I think that I should probably think about more. And right. Well, so I guess I recognize the importance of approaching new technologies and founders with humility, like I mentioned at the beginning of the call. So, you know, in Bitcoin, especially in Bitcoin's early days, the people promoting projects were sort of the folks that you know, they were the outsiders and underdogs of under tech, other tech fields. They were people that didn't feel motivated or compelled by traditional tech and business models that were sort of necessary to really create massive enterprise value in a traditional tech system. The folks that had sort of been um, disillusioned by that world were the folks that first came into Bitcoin. And so they didn't look, sound, or, you know, really communicate like traditional tech folks. And you almost have to, you have to be humble enough to be able to interpret what they're saying without being distracted by the fact that what they're saying it in a different way than a traditional um, tech founder would do. But once you could sort of get over that, that hurdle, then Bitcoin promotes a different business model. So if traditional tech is all about the aggregation of power and data, And that being directly related to the enterprise value a company can build, Bitcoin is sort of the opposite. Companies built on Bitcoin propose the opposite. So decentralization and scalability, I think, are positively correlated. So what I mean by that is you can get much greater scale if you have a truly decentralized system. And if you're not promoting the traditional um, paradigm of tech, which is the centralization of power and authority and permission. And so, you know, to sort of make that, that shift in how a, a VC sees the world, I think is critical to understanding Bitcoin. And I think a lot of what you see in the hype around altcoins and altcoin investing, DeFi investing, all of this is really about VCs with experience in the traditional tech world trying to apply the same principles and paradigm to a technology that's fundamentally different. And so you have to be able to, in Bitcoin, especially coming into Bitcoin as a new venture investor in the space, you have to be able to challenge your old assumptions, including the assumptions that prior made you money, right? So a lot of the folks in the venture capital world are, you know, it's an older field, right? So it's folks in their 50s and 60s that have created great wealth in the world of the old paradigm. And Bitcoin is completely sort of, you know, antithetical to that. And so to be able to give up the beliefs that you built a career on to try something new, I think is very challenging. And um, that created an opportunity for, for me, frankly, to come in and to offer, you know, a solution for founders, that wanted to work with someone that both understood venture capital and understood Bitcoin. And so there's very few opportunities to do that. And by the way, I just want to point out here that I think that all the founders that we've invested in, they all could succeed independently without venture capital investments and certainly without us. But what we're meant to do and what venture capital is meant to do is to provide the resources to help founders accelerate the growth they would otherwise have. So that's all we're doing. It's it's pretty simple. We're really a service provider to founders. But when founders want that extra accelerant, when they want to put gas on the flame, then we we think that we can be one of the best or the best provider of that because we're grounded in this practice of traditional venture capital, which is meant to, you know, promote founders and you know, help them scale like I said before, but we also understand Bitcoin. And so hopefully what that means is that we can provide more signal, less noise, stay out of the way when it's important to, and, you know, ultimately really help founders sort of avoid the problems that are obvious if you've worked with hundreds of companies that might not be obvious if you're on your first company or second or even third company. And so, you know, I don't know if that was a direct response to your question. I I think there's, you know, I have a lot to think about In terms of what I've learned about venture capital through Bitcoin. Um, but those are a few of the things that, you know, I've learned or I'm trying to continue to learn. There, there's one other thing that, you know, we promote at Stillmark, which is that in Bitcoin, when you're building, you're part of an open source, you're part of the open source community, whether you are directly contributing or not. So here's what I mean. In venture capital, we, you'll hear a lot of traditional VCs talk about when they back a company. It's all about finding the best team in a large market. You've probably heard that dozens of times. So it's about founders and market. True. But in Bitcoin, it's about something else. So it's about how that team and that market are related to the underlying protocol technologies that they depend on. And if what that team is building, both the business model and the product are consistent with the underlying technologies and the principles of the tech. And so there's this third piece that in order to do venture capital in the Bitcoin space, I think you have to get that piece right, too. And my earlier example about payments tech in 2014 illustrates that point. So if in 2014, you're betting on a payments tech company that is promising visa level scale, in absence of second layer technologies, or even advancements at the core protocol level that make, you know, transactions um, lighter or increase throughput, you were sort of betting on a company and on a business model that wasn't possible given the underlying technology, the open source technology that that company depended on. And then, by the way, there's this other nuance that's obvious to many, especially, you know, you're one of the advocates of this, but the open source developers are not under the management or authority of the companies building upon the tech. Right. That's something I think that, you know, many folks, including traditional VCs, have sort of missed that really important nuance is that even though the companies built on or alongside Bitcoin open source technologies depend on the tech, they don't have direct influence and certainly not authority over how that technology is developed. And so you sort of have to observe what the tech can do, what the roadmap looks like, um, be cognizant or really just actually, you know, closely follow the developer discussions that are happening around the maintenance and advancement of these open source technologies. And you have to select for founders that know how to work under this sort of dynamic. So this is really specific to Bitcoin. It, I hope that it's one of the things that, you know, that sort of defines what Stillmark does is that we acknowledge that and get to know the open source technologies in the same way as if they were a direct part of the portfolio, even though they're not, of course.
0: The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House. Which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to safehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lisciak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how bitcoin fixes it this is a bitcoiners bookshop so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top go to the safehouse.com and get yours now yeah i think this is, this is really a very uh, important point i think Somebody called it once the eternal wood chipper in which the noobs continue to stick their hands while we watch, you know, everybody comes in and they have this idea that particularly f- people from Silicon Valley, from the investment world, when Microsoft wants to do something, you know, it, if there's something about a an open source project that Microsoft needs, it just gets it done. You know, it'll hire people, they'll take over the project, they'll do with it what they want, they'll fork it. And so there's always this idea that, you know, um, as long as you've got the lawyers and the patents and you have Fiat World on your side And you've got money and you've got financing from uh, low interest rate uh, banks. Then you just run roughshod over everything around you. You just just go in and, uh, you know, um, break things and say sorry later and uh, move on. So a lot of businesses in Bitcoin, as you were saying, you know, particularly 2014, that generation, a lot of it implicitly was built on the idea that eventually do a 1000x increase in Bitcoin's block size. That's kind of the implicit way that you could do it. So I think that was basically BitPay's argument that they were going to replace Visa and MasterCard. And uh, they'll just offer a cheaper way to do Visa and MasterCard. Well, Visa and MasterCard do something like 3000, 4000 transactions per second, perhaps, which, you know, is about a thousand times more than Bitcoin. It's a small little technical thing. And for a lot of VCs, it seems like, yeah, if you could run computers to do 500 transactions, you could do 5,000 and 5 million. And so it just seemed like it was a very foregone conclusion for most of them. And yet when uh, they came in, we see this over and over again. And 2017 obviously was significant battle where effectively a lot of these businesses that had come up against the wall of being unable to change Bitcoin's block size, got together and, I mean, did kind of a, a PR stunt in order to try and convince us to change what is on our nodes. And it was amazing because Bitcoin, you know, it's ultimately about what people run on their nodes and people just didn't buy it. It was marketed as if they all got together and they came up with a historic compromise between all the different factions and interests but the majority of Bitcoin users didn't care and they just continued to run their software. That's exactly right.
1: So your, your knowledge of Bitcoin's history is incredible. So that's exactly right. So the way I see 2017 is the explosion that had to happen based on the investing that happened in 2014 that was disconnected, frankly, from knowledge of the underlying protocol. And so what had happened was people had deployed capital understanding the companies and the teams and not understanding Bitcoin Core. And so it was, you know, it was sort of predictable that at some point the tension that was created by that misunderstanding would create an explosion. And I think that's what happened with SegWit 2X. So anyhow, the work of event investing in the space is really just to make sure that the sort of pressure that incumbent technology companies can apply on open source development in other spaces is dissimilar from what can happen in Bitcoin. And so that needs to be acknowledged when investing in the space. However, that's to everyone's advantage, I think, including the companies, because for Bitcoin to stay decentralized, impenetrable to attacks, including attacks like taxation or government intervention, blacklisting, means that it's inherently fundamentally more scalable than other systems that are you know, at greater risk of attack, we see that happening today. And so companies have even a bigger market, because of that almost like method manner of security. And so you know, it's sort of there's a lot of like nuance and learning required here, I think, or unlearning, not learning but unlearning of old dynamics in the traditional tech space. But once you have that, then you can sort of recognize Bitcoin's potential. And I think it's just massive. Um, as an example of of the process that I went through and understanding the implications of that, the decentralization and how that protects the network and companies on top of it from being subject to various forms of attack, including um, attack of intermediaries. When I started digging more into the tech in 2014 and 2015, what I realized was, or what I thought I saw, was that Bitcoin is fintech for poor people. That doesn't mean to me that it's not valuable, and it is for wealthy people, for privileged people, for everyone. But what's unique about Bitcoin is that because it's decentralized and resilient against various forms of attack, that means poor people can also use it. And so it's a way to introduce the un- and underbanked to the global economy, mostly for the first time, for the first time, really. And there's no bigger market than that. And so the distraction of flashier and shorter term trends like NFT, DeFi, all of these things, it's sort of at the expense of understanding the bigger opportunity, which is to have, you know, a more connected global economy or a more inclusive global economy. And that's a large market. Even if you're only motivated just by capitalistic intent, the desire to make money, you know, you can't turn away from an opportunity like that to include billions of new people into global exchange.
0: Yeah, so you seem to operate according to an extremely curious business model Uh, in the crypto industry. This sounds alien, where you finance companies and the idea is that they will build products that will then generate revenue and you will make money from the revenue, which is extremely archaic in the crypto industry because it doesn't involve you printing your own currency, Um, (laughs) which if you don't have most of uh, crypto twitter blocked on twitter like i do this would appear to be just the standard business model you know how do you pay developers if you don't launch your own central bank and how do you um, pay for marketing and how do you get the protocol started and how do you, you basically how do you see the ponzi unless you launch a currency but you simply refuse to do that uh, you, you refuse to play that game so you don't you don't invest in basically protocols that launch their own currencies and basically you're you're bitcoin only in Stillmark, right
1: Right. This is true. So the way that the companies that we back make money is by offering a product that people find valuable and pay for. So very simple, right? Traditional, traditional company building. That's so Um, archaic.
0: Obviously it can't work in the 21st century. Like how do you get rich from people paying from a valuable product that doesn't, doesn't compute?
1: Yeah. This is what, right, it's incredible, actually. That's a whole separate conversation best had over drinks. But the way that venture capitalists make money is by the appreciation of the company because of the value of the product for its user base, for its core user base. So, So basically, I think what tokens have done in the alt point space is they found a way to separate venture capital return from a company's enterprise value. And so they or equity value. So they found a way to separate the venture capital return from product, from business model, and even from adoption from sustainable adoption is is what I mean. And so, you know, I think that's just not venture capital, it's a different model. And we like to know what we know, and then know what we don't know. And what we know is venture capital. I think, by the way, both of my grandfathers were entrepreneurs. I respect founders more than I respect any other category of people in the world. I think that, you know, to sort of take the risk to change the world... Through building a company where, you know, you're completely exposed, there's no hedge, right? You have a portfolio of one when you're a founder. I just think, you know, that sort of ambition and the, you know, just the courage and work that it takes is just remarkable. It's incredible. Um, and so, anyhow, we're you know we sort of see we want to be good advocates for founders. We also want to know what we know and what we don't know. And so, venture capital is a practice of backing founders that that intend to you know advance culture or change a community or population by offering a product that you know has utility that adds value that they can capture some of that value from. That's their business model. You know, the token space is just different. So, the token space is about Well, you know, maybe I'm not the best person to define it, but it feels very different from venture capital and especially around how you exit. And so just to make this point, which is, I'm sure, you know, very obvious to you and you might be able to make more eloquently than me, but when a venture capital exits their position and makes money, it's through the sale of equity to another sophisticated investor or to the public markets, right? So there's only a few ways that you access liquidity in traditional venture capital, and that's through IPO acquisition, sometimes through a secondary sale to other venture capitalists, to sophisticated investors. In the token space, that's not how you exit. So you may exit to a sophisticated investor, or you may exit to a 14-year-old trading on his father's computer in a corner of a living room somewhere. So, you know, these are just fundamentally different or, things. Or, you know,
0: a 38-year-old Ukrainian refugee putting his life savings online so that he can get out of Ukraine and getting rugged yeah. by uh, the VC. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a really good point. Um, you know, it's hard to think about a lot of that stuff. And so I'm happy I don't have to. So we're really heads down on Bitcoin and the technologies around Bitcoin. Now, that said, when we think about being Bitcoin only, you know, I'm able to entertain the idea that companies that are not Bitcoin only, but that include Bitcoin in their work can also advance Bitcoin. So here's how we think about exactly what we do. If what a founder is promoting offers an opportunity to drive Bitcoin's adoption or increase the utility of Bitcoin... Then that's a founder who fits within Stillmark's mandate. By the way, that can include non Bitcoin, non crypto companies. So it doesn't right now, but it could. Yeah. So for example, a uh, you know maybe there's a cybersecurity company that that could advance Bitcoin or people's ability to be their own bank, and that could be a company that fits into Bitcoin even if they weren't building on Bitcoin proper. Or, or here, here's another example, um, a fun one. So a recent investment we did was in a gaming studio. They're just a gaming studio, but they think that offering Bitcoin, offering stats within a game can create a much better experience for their users and cr- can create you know, stronger, more robust, uh, more enjoyable peer-to-peer communication in, in the game. That's called Pink Frog. You know, I don't know. Is that a Bitcoin company or is that a gaming company? I think that's just a gaming company, but they can drive adoption. Maybe just to shift gears a bit to talk about the types of founders coming into the space. The most incredible founders now, not just Bitcoin founders, in 2021, we saw this shift, which was that folks building in other sectors that would not define themselves necessarily as Bitcoin founders, Look to Bitcoin and Lightning Network as a way to create depth and value in what they were building. So to continue with the Pink Frog story, the Pink Frog founders come from King, which is one of the most successful gaming studios in the world, and they are the ones that built Candy Crush, from zero to 100 million monthly active users. So when you have minds like that building a game that integrates Sats, that integrates Lightning in order to provide a better gaming experience for their users, what can that mean for Bitcoin's adoption and for people's first experience of Bitcoin? I think that the next bull market creates this really interesting opportunity. We will have several new on-ramps to on- not just BlackRock, right? So we uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about BlackRock offering a traditional on-ramp to Bitcoin for the world's most sort of like classic institutions, the most conservative classic institutions. But it's not just BlackRock offering those new on-ramps. It's companies like Pinkfrog, where the founders have the experience of how to engage, entertain, sustain a user base of 100 million people offering an on-ramp that's familiar to their end user. And those are just, those are, you know, examples on two opposite ends of the spectrum. But I think it's those familiar on ramps that onboard people in a way that feels comfortable and you know, just less frictionful, not frictionful, that really creates an opportunity for people to learn about Bitcoin on their own terms and from people that know how to speak their language. And and when we do that, we generate, I think, a healthy and growing community, not just a growing community, but a, a community that is learning about the tech from people that they trust or from experiences that they know
0: yeah and i think uh, you know uh kind of the, the way the bitcoin works is that eventually every company needs to be a bitcoin company <laughs> they're That's all right. going to become bitcoin involved in one way and i think i also see this in, in, in the sense of this podcast like uh, bitcoin touches everything and uh, you know fiat money which is what bitcoin is up against also touches everything, so it's natural that the implications are going to pervade many, many uh, topics and many areas uh, of life. So, uh, but it's well, likely
1: that Bitcoin will be even more ubiquitous, though, than fiat money because Bitcoin can meet folks where they are. Right, so it's that it, you said at the very top of the conversation that it, it's almost hard to imagine an, a web-native currency. And that's what Bitcoin is. So where fiat could not go, Bitcoin can go. And the impact of that, I think is what's almost impossible to wrap our minds around, but we will start to see it, you know? And so some of the things, yeah, I mean, I just, there, there's just so much here that will be unlocked. And it, it's not just peer to peer, but machine to machine. You know, it's everywhere that the web has gone, Bitcoin can go and fiat couldn't. And so I think, you know, actually, Our experience of Bitcoin, every company will be a Bitcoin company, whether that means they're interacting with the tech or the asset by diversifying their treasury to hold BTC following MicroStrategy's example. Interesting that A16Z has sort of been behind by this because they have an investor there, Angela Strange who several years ago put out this thesis about every company becoming a fintech company. And that was because every company was, you know, offering value in some way to their end users that required the exchange potentially of fiat money. But if you really think about the implications of every company becoming a fintech company, you see the need for Bitcoin, for Bitcoin's rails, if not for Bitcoin asset itself. And so, you know, anyhow, I I expect the next decade to be a very interesting one. Because there's probably even beyond the scope of what you and I can imagine, I think Bitcoin has relevance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to go back to your original point on uh, the fact that it's a neutral protocol, and this is this is why it's so much more powerful, because on the Internet, you know, uh, not only does it go everywhere where fiat cannot, but it also connects all of those uh, everywheres to one another on the same base layer and that's exactly that, that's why it's so powerful because everybody can send to everybody at the same time so that which you know when you compare it to fiat where which is really a siloed network of uh, central banks and then regional central banks and then regional banks and everything has to go top down everything has to go uh, through the entire chain of command in order to uh, pass that's just never going to scale as much because of all of the Politics that are involved, right? And, and that's where Bitcoin becomes so much more uh, powerful.
1: Right. So, it's slow. It's slow to to decide who gets to use the system or not, right? That that slows down the process of payments when you have intermediaries that can say yes, you, but not you. And because Bitcoin doesn't do that, it's faster. It's more scalable, and we're going to get the opportunity to really have a connected world and. Uh, you know, a connected web. And so I, I'm, it's, it feels really very lucky that I'm able to be alive and working during this period that we're seeing such a fundamental shift yeah. and to be working with the folks that, you know, best understand it and trying to learn from them.
0: Mm-hmm in light of the recent all of the problems with the um, crypto markets and all the bankruptcies that we saw with all these uh, supposedly genius funds uh, that went out of business i presume one of the advantages of being a bitcoin vc is that uh, you sleep better during those times because uh, first of all you don't have to worry about bitcoin not being there tomorrow which is a significant possibility for pretty much every other digital currency and also I think the kind of risks that are involved are different. How did the last few months look from your uh, end?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. There's a lot to say to that. So first, I think I'll say that in 2017, I did an exploration of really what it meant to be um, you know, a good partner as a crypto fund. So if you were to launch a crypto fund and support your portfolio companies, what would you need to do? like it was obvious that these sorts of blow ups were going to happen because the things that you needed to do to be a good partner to your portfolio companies, you know, frankly, created a lot of risk for the investing institution. And it's not a complete, you know, frankly, like, it's more surprising that fewer crypto funds have collapsed. I'd say that was the surprise. I mean, I guess that, you know, it's very interesting, because I think this space is not immune to the same, you know, sort. Of of risk the he of human nature in all spaces, which is that people respond to confidence, right? And so whoever can put on the best confident performance, like the three AC guys, you know, they sort of, people defer to them and assume that they know what they're doing because they say they know what they're doing. And that, that's, I me. Mean, that's not new to crypto. That exists in every field. But, you know, I'd have to say that in Bitcoin, frankly, I see it a little bit as a risk. And so just what I have noticed is that the best thinkers in the space, the people building real value and promoting, you know, whether that be because they're building a company or writing or researching, are folks that are doing it with humility and sort of questioning their own work. And so when I see people not questioning their own work and trying to come in to assume authority or to dictate standards, you know, I mean, that puts up a red flag. And so I, you know, to me, the three eight. Um, You see, guys, I I thought it was alarming that people followed them with such like deference because you could see that they weren't sort of, you know, questioning their work and they were offended by people or now we know why, right? But they were clearly offended, including on public forums like Twitter, when people questioned their work, even small questions. That's a huge red flag, I think, in any field, but especially in crypto. So the past few months are easier if you're backing Bitcoin companies, and there's a few reasons. It's not, it's not just because Bitcoin, the protocol and the asset are not at risk for collapse in the same way that other cryptocurrencies are, including Ethereum. Another difference is that we haven't had these really hot investing environments in the Bitcoin space yet. So where in the Ethereum or Solana space, everyone's competing, there's many, many funds including billion dollar funds that are all competing for the same deals, the valuations get priced up really hot and companies get way over their skis in terms of valuation against metrics. And that's because their spaces are overcapitalized and frankly, because there's really sloppy work happening by folks investing in the space. But you know, some of it also isn't their fault, the deals are just getting priced up. In the Bitcoin space, it's not the same. The space until pretty recently has been undercapitalized, including at the early stage. So that has been mostly, you know, mostly resolved. But as a result of being undercapitalized, valuations were fair and based on metrics. And so you didn't have anyone raising, you know, the $2 billion valuation while they were still in Tesla, for example. And because you didn't have that, these companies then don't need to sort of justify higher valuations in a bear market in order to raise cash to extend their runway, right? So, um, and that's the situation that all of the crypto companies are in, where they, you know, they raised massive rounds while they were in testnet. They had no user feedback or very sort of noisy user feedback, because of course, tokens, when you've introduced, a, you know, a forced token into a network, the way users engage with your network and product to understand whether it's for the product or for the token is very difficult, right? So not only do some of these companies not have any sort of user feedback because of how early they are in stage, but a lot of them, all of them outside of the Bitcoin space have very noisy user feedback because there's a token attached. And so to be able to sort of drive towards these healthy um, financings through you know, increasingly appreciating the value of your company is going to be very difficult. And so what you're seeing now and hearing about in the media is these down rounds. And while that will apply to Bitcoin companies at the edges, most Bitcoin companies are insulated from that because they've raised really healthy, justifiable rounds prior. Then the other thing is that Bitcoin founders don't ha- aren't you know, raised in this sort of culture of easy money. And so, folks, you know, it's it's new that we have more venture capital funds in the Bitcoin space. So Stillmark was the first, and that was in 2019. So even that's very recent, but everything else is much newer. And so founders haven't made the mistake of assuming that it would always be easy to raise money. And so instead, what they've done is that they've made sure that they have really long runways. So people weren't raising money and then just burning through cash quickly. They were looking at having two, three, four years of runway which is very atypical of traditional tech. They were driving to get to profitability quicker so that they had cash flow, a non-dilutive source of capital to continue growing the company. And they've been really smart on treasury management. And so while they can't appreciate the value of that now, so what I mean by this is buying Bitcoin low to diversify their treasury so that they're holding both their local fiat and BTC They've been able to appreciate the value of that in the bull market by extending their runway through the benefit of Bitcoin's appreciation. And so Bitcoin founders have just, there's really been a hustle to think about how to extend runway and the longevity of the company, how to resource the company without depending on VCs. And so you just have a healthier startup ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I I mean, this, this is a thing that continues to come up across pretty much every single discussion we have in this podcast. Anybody who's involved in Bitcoin reports the same kind of uh, (laughs) lowering of time preference and Longer time horizon and thinking further uh, down the road, rather than thinking about the short term. I, I've been repeatedly banging on this point, but the reason that I do it is because I just keep running into people who mention this. I think it's over and over and over. You see it, like with Bitcoin founders, with 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 Bitcoin companies. There is this kind of focus, and what's interesting is i've noticed maybe this is my bias but i think when these companies go bitcoin and crypto they become much more of a short-termist and they also become more short-termist in their dealing with the bitcoin protocol so being in crypto is a very strong indicator of believing that bitcoin needs to hard fork for whatever reason being in crypto almost certainly meant That you supported the SegWit2x hard fork in 2017. And it'll almost inevitably also coincide with, yes, Bitcoin's block subsidy is not enough and we need to reintroduce inflation when the subsidy runs out because it'll run out. So there's, there's, there's always this kind of, we need to fix it. We have to think of the problem right now and we need to ignore the long term. That kind of mentality, people who think that, I found, will gravitate toward hard forking bitcoin and toward crypto and then people who think long term don't see both of those things
1: yes so i think that long term thinking is important to understanding bitcoin and that there's signs of short term thinking that can emerge you know as early indicators of maybe someone's lack of long term thinking yeah, I, you know, it's good to watch for those things. I also think that if a company is doing crypto plus Bitcoin instead of just Bitcoin, there's there can be a variety of motivations for that, including, you know, one of the arguments that I've heard, and I would assume that, you know, you would question, is that people want individual users to have a choice of what assets they hold. What we do when we support founders is, and you see in my portfolio, we're really supporting You know, this is a question that we haven't really had to respond to yet because most of our, the vast majority of our companies are just Bitcoin only. But when I've talked to founders that have done more than Bitcoin, I've, you know, sort of appreciated their stance that they, you know, want to let their users decide what the users want. Now, the question there, of course, is, are you lending your brand, your company's brands to altcoins that are then going to end up sort of leading the user down a difficult path. And, you know, of course, I believe in individual choice. Absolutely. But here's the problem. People are super busy, you know, and desperate or in need of, you know, solutions in a world where inflation is sort of out of control. Um, You know, the rules around money are changing and unpredictable. And people want a better life for themselves and their families. And they're also busy just making ends meet. So trying to understand the difference between Ethereum or Affinity, like to pull up one from years ago or from, you know, like Siba Inu coin or whatever it is, and Bitcoin, trying to actually understand the technical differences or the incentive system differences between these things is, I think, nearly impossible for just a normal guy or woman trying to to make ends meet for their family. And so there is sort of trust involved in their interaction with companies. And if they're trusting a company to sort of introduce them to good products or safe products, like is typical in, you know, the traditional financial system that we operate in, even though it shouldn't be, you know, I think that there is a potential for companies that are doing more than Bitcoin to do harm, unfortunately, not because it's their agenda to to do so but you know just because we underestimate how busy and sort of you know hopeless people are given the traditional markets and and not just the traditional markets because it's a privilege to be able to participate there but just there's very little social mobility and financial mobility and people see crypto as an opportunity to sort of elevate themselves and their families and I can absolutely empathize with that and so I think We do need to be careful in what we present to people, especially when we've established a brand that people trust through Bitcoin. We need to be careful with what we do with that brand.
0: Yeah, when the tide run turns out. And the uh, market goes bad. You hear so many horror stories and um, it comes back to affect Bitcoin. So I, I somebody was sharing a headline uh, just the other day of, uh, I can't remember which newspaper it was, but something about the recent Bitcoin crash ruining people's lives. And it's all about Celsius and Luna and uh, all of these things that are not Bitcoiners. And <laughs> I think the beautiful irony of it is uh, I tweeted this once that, you know, the lifetime of an altcoin is first and, and 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 luna did that really in like six months luna was like the uh the, the condensed altcoin that went uh, you know rose from zero to, to the sky and back which is the lifetime of all altcoins but it did it very quickly and so you start off with the people behind the altcoin calling bitcoiners stupid because bitcoiners are not getting into this obviously genius altcoin that's so much better than bitcoin and then it ends with no-coiners calling Bitcoiners stupid because Bitcoin is just like this stupid scam that has gone to zero. And it's just, we're sitting there. And, you know, I, I, I for me, Luna was a particular example because, you know, it, it came at a point where, like, it was, I'm not getting into looking into altcoins. So I had no idea what was going on. I ignore all mention of all altcoins. And I, 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 I had no idea what was going on. I barely heard anything about something about them buying a lot of Bitcoin. And then I started hearing that it was crashing. And then I looked into it. And it's amazing, you know. Within six months, I went from being called an idiot on the internet for not getting into this Ponzi scheme, and then getting called an idiot on the internet for uh, being in something exactly like that Ponzi scheme.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what that's, that's exactly right. So, well, so here's you know an interesting part about venture capital that I think is not obvious on the outside. But one of the things that we do, so we we raise funds from high net worth individuals or from institutional investors, right? So Stillmark's funds is basically the aggregate capital of our investors and we're investment managers for these folks. But what happens when you fundraise is that you go to people that maybe don't yet know Bitcoin or know Bitcoin through crypto and you, you know, your job is to sort of convince them on Bitcoin and the founders of the space because you're looking to secure resources for startup founders, right? Ultimately, that's what you're doing. And so we get to hear a lot about the misperceptions and confusions of high net worth individuals and institutional investors. And the really sort of scary thing is that some of the crypto funds are promoting, you know, some really, I think, very malicious misinformation. So to give you an example that I think is going to blow your mind, we spoke to a large institutional investor who had purchased Bitcoin and Ethereum their, you know, to diversify their treasury. And that institutional investor did not know that Bitcoin and Ethereum are secured by different blockchains. They did not know that. So they thought that Ethereum and Bitcoin were both on Bitcoin. It's very secure, very stable, you know, 99.9999% uptime blockchain.
0: Tell him about the merge.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I'm sure that, yeah, that must have, right. So how how could one be green and one not if they're both on the same blockchain? I should have asked that question. But there's, you know, so there's this like coattail writing that I think is, you know, really malicious because it's almost a form of like a DDoS attack on people that are really busy and trying to figure out various technologies. So here's another one. I spoke with an investor in one of these billion dollar crypto funds the other day. That through me was the first time they realized that Lightning Network doesn't work on Ethereum and Solana. They didn't know that. So they thought that Bitcoin's Lightning Network, really the LND, you know, network of nodes was also present on Ethereum. I, you know, I don't think they came to that themselves. And then you know, relating back to what you said about crypto sort of presenting itself as more exciting than Bitcoin, but then when there's a downturn, Bitcoin taking the hit for that. One of the trends we've seen in talking to high net worth individuals is that the patriarch or matriarch of the family will kind of get Bitcoin, or maybe even will really get Bitcoin. The next generation looking for something like new and exciting and to be smarter than mom and dad is like really promoting DAOs or NFTs or Ethereum, and is te- Ethereum just, you know, straight up without the bells and whistles and is telling their parents that Bitcoin is the boomer coin. So it, it's, you know, this sort of like anti-marketing against Bitcoin that's happening, not on Twitter, but behind closed doors with people that have the resources to allocate to the growth of the ecosystem, it's, you know, it's really dark, frankly. The miseducation of people for the short-term intention of funds, you know, to raise resources to purchase tokens that can be dumped on, like you said, 38-year-old Ukrainians looking to advance their family. This cycle is is dark. And so, you know, we're really happy and feel very fortunate to be able to be supported, to be in a position where we don't have to lie or misrepresent the tech to the people that we work with.
0: Yeah, this is, uh, this is, I think, uh, a huge advantage of it. And it's uh, there surely can be gains to be made from these things. But, you know, and I don't want to be sounding like a curmudgeon here, but there are uh, long-term implications to it. You know, people are going to get upset about losing their money in many of those projects. And, you know, why would you want to be publicly involved in things that end up causing people tears? This is, I think, the issue. It's just, yeah, you can make money, but, you know, a lot of things can get you money a lot of things are also not worth it.
1: (laughs) Right, that's very true. And so I think the way that tokens trade looks more like gambling to me than it does anything else. And so gambling, of course, is considered a vice industry. And many traditional investing institutions are dispermitted, most are dispermitted from investing in vice industries. And so as a way to sort of cover up that that's actually what they're investing in, when they're investing in some of these crypto funds, there's been this you know promotion of of Bitcoin as going in the oceans or as being boomer tech, and so the memes have to be really strong to distract people from actually what' what they're doing and what's happening, which is much closer to backing a vice industry than backing a traditional venture capital fund
0: yeah I think uh, it's uh, it's it's worth remembering every single altcoin's marketing has to rely. By definition, on attacking Bitcoin, like you can't sell an altcoin unless you identify a problem with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is already there. It has a lot more liquidity than your coin that does not exist yet. And so why would you need your coin? And so there was never a good answer for all of that, uh, except well, Bitcoin is not X enough. And so it's not fast enough, it's not private enough, it's not scalable enough, it's uh, whatever it is. There's always a problem with Bitcoin or, you know, it's not environmental enough, it's boiling oceans, it's doing this. There's always a problem and then there's always a solution that magically... Can only work if you trust in a currency that i myself and my investors issue and can sell to anybody in the world it can exit dump on as you said 14 year olds and refugees and anybody in the world so we end up with this enormous incentive to flood bitcoin and this is you know for people who uh think wow bitcoin is just so exceptionally rude well no it's because this entire industry has to start from the starting point that well bitcoin is not fast and therefore here's why we're my own pre seventy percent pre mined shitcoin is much faster. So, um, as I like to call it, you know, the simple argument for all of these things is, uh, hey, you can save a lot in electricity if you just let me print your money. Uh, <laughs> just become become my slave and save uh, on your electricity bill. I mean, there's there's no amount of electricity that I wouldn't pay not to have somebody print my money, and they they exploit that gullibility that you know. Oh, well, it's all digital coins and it's all the same, but really one of them allows somebody to be in charge and to print whatever they want. And one of them allows you to escape from that. And that's, that's really what makes the big difference.
1: Right. I think they, you know, it's really an exploitation of people being busy and then it's an identification of people's vulnerabilities and, and, you know, sort of telling people what they want to hear. And an example is Bitcoin is a boomer coin that like your mom or dad would promote. You're smarter than your mom and dad, right? So you should promote Ethereum or Solana. I mean, this yep. is, it's, it's really a ta- an attack either it's twofold. One on people's bu- busyness and, you know, lack of time to devote to resource the tech to look at the open source protocol. And two, it's an exploit of people's own, you know, vanity or other vulnerabilities and. You know, we, we see that in a different off of Twitter, right, in these conversations with folks that are allocating resources. And it's, you know, it's sort of really informative of the low time preference in other spaces because these things are all will all be discoverable. So you can't be centralized without also experiencing um, the ramifications of that although they might not be obvious in the short term. And so, you know, the FUD and um, miseducation of the folks in your community is, um, you know, is is indicative of short-term thinking versus really building for the long term and maintaining a brand over the long term. And if you're on the Bitcoin side and with what Stillmark's doing, the intention is that, you know, we can be present and participatory over decades. You know, it's it's not about the quick quick flip, like the 3AC story of looking to quickly buy a $50 million yacht. It's the opposite of that. It's about being, you know, collaborators and good partners to the founders that are building a new culture based on decentralized tech. And what do you have to do to make sure that you're relevant in two decades and three decades time in this context? I I think you think about your work in the same way
0: yeah absolutely uh, I agree, and I think you know you 're absolutely correct in that it 's an exploitation of busy but it's it 's also an exploitation of just what fiat does, which is why I think altcoins are in the same team as Fiat because uh, before we had Fiat when money was gold, saving was something that anybody could perform. You went and worked for a day, you got paid with a coin, you took that coin home, and then you just kept that coin and if you held it under your mattress for ten years it You knew that 10 years later, you could get it and it would be worth a little bit more than what you put it there. So you knew that the money that you earned was yours to keep and nobody could take it away. This was what life was like for the vast majority of people who lived on gold for the past several hundred and thousand years, probably many places. But then you take that away and now people's money is constantly losing value. So you have to get out and invest, which really, if you're being prodded to do it, it's not really investment. Like you're, you're you're being you're you're not being driven by a fundamental thesis of hey, you know, I think this world is going to need typewriters, and I'm going to go invest in typewriters, and then that's why I I I will profit because I have a vision where this is the idea of what I think is going to come. This is what investment should be. Instead, everybody has to invest just because they don't want to lose money, which is the worst kind of motivation. So you're be, you're being told you have to go and. Develop a, an, 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 an opinion on what's going to happen with the typewriter industry and the computer industry and the soft drink industry and, you know, foreign policy, global geopolitics, uh, foreign central banks, monetary policies, commodity markets. You need to develop an opinion and a thesis on all of those things just to keep the money that you've already earned. You know, you've already worked, you've already earned it. You shouldn't have to work for it again, but you're being made to work an extra job. And, you know, obviously the fiat establishment likes to present it as if this is just an easy job, you know, just uh, put it in real estate or put it in an index and then you'll beat inflation. No, you won't. You'll beat the CPI, yeah, but that's designed so that you could look like you could beat it. But I always tell people, um, your real inflation rate is look at the house you want to buy. Look at your dream house, the one that you would want to live in, find that house look at what has happened to its price over the last 10 20 years that's the inflation rate you're after that's the one that you're witnessing even if you even if you own that house that's the inflation rate that you're experiencing everywhere else in your life because that's really what is happening to things that people really desire that are scarce you know sure you can still get cheap uh, plastic food but that's not what you're really after that's not what really matters to you you know the, the, your happiness isn't going to be determined by uh, how much Pepsi you can afford, or how much, uh, uh, all that stuff. So you end up having to gamble, and Bitcoin is a way out of this because that's it. You just invest in the scarcity. You put your money in something that is limited, and you know nobody is going to inflate it. And so there is an idea that in the long term, it's not going to decline in value because nobody can print more of it, and it continues to remain safe and secure. You bring back altcoins, and then you were back to square one, where you need to have. a a full-time job following what is happening with this new coin and that coin. Should I buy this? Should I dump this one? Should I sell this one? Which one is going to moon? Which one is, let's do technical analysis. And then that's just another job. And it's, it's sad because, you know, even if you did that as a full-time job, the vast majority of people will lose in that job. It's a negative sum game.
1: Absolutely. That's um, yeah. So we have to do a, a better job of explaining exactly that to a broader group of people that are going to consume the message best in different forms, if that makes sense. So we're one of the things we're thinking a lot about is, is narrative development and storytelling. And here's why there's two reasons. One is because, you know, frankly, like the alt point space, if there's one thing that they're really crushing is storytelling you know, they're great storytellers. Of course, this is because they have to be, right? But anyhow, they're doing a good job. Bitcoin has paid attention to tech first, product second. Storytelling, maybe never. And so I think we need to... So anyway, we're, we're thinking a lot about that and also how to develop that skill um, and resource internal to Stillmark for the support of both the industry Stillmark and our portfolio company. But, you know, so there's two things here, I think, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. You are such an effective storyteller. I wonder how you think about who's speaking to the groups that are, you know, that are compelled by like a different tone, form, even a different sort of like format than what you produce, because I think that, you know, you are so effective with a very broad audience. And then there's also people that are outside of that audience. And so, you know, what what I want to make sure exists is a way for everyone to learn about Bitcoin from someone that they feel that they can relate to in some way, either because this is just like a superficial way they can relate or because of like the main hook of the way that person's telling that story. And the, the thing that I'm, you know, really concerned about or, like, the background of this statement is that in 2013, when I went on YouTube and searched for Bitcoin, the people that came up were Adam Back and Andreas Antonopoulos. So this was, like, easy to get signal, right? If you go on to YouTube today and you search for Bitcoin, they, people will find you, but they will also – and they'll find Adam somewhere – but they'll also find 30,000 altcoin promoters who have Bitcoin in the tag, you know, because they're comparing their altcoin to Bitcoin. And some of those folks are really good storytellers or look like or sound like, you know, the audience that intends to learn about Bitcoin. So anyhow, I'm just, I'm wondering how you think about broadening um, the message about Bitcoin so that it's easily consumable by, by all people.
0: Hmm. Um, Maybe that's
1: not a fair question, but this is the question we're asking internally. So just to give you an example of the problem, we know that in emerging markets that, you know, during bull markets, there's going to be, you know, various coin promoters in that emerging market specifically to promote that coin as being able to catch up to Bitcoin, right? So that's the entire story. How do you make sure that people in that emerging market feel like a normal person, whatever that means to them? that they can get the Bitcoin message from? How do we do that?
0: I don't know. I don't know. It's um, honestly, like my, my, my personal experience is that <laughs> it's going to sound really weird, but it's, it's almost like once I stopped caring about what people think and just focused on getting my ideas on the page mm-hmm. and just putting it out, that's when people started reading my work. I think before that, I mean, I always knew I was kind of a good writer. I'd always get that, from people, like I could write well. But I I was effectively unable to write because I was trying to write in uh, academia and I had to make my writing palatable for people in academia. And that was crippling. It it, it meant that for about uh, 10 years of my life, I was just sitting there trying to write things in a way that other people would appreciate so that they could get me into their journals And that uh, so so that I could get to keep my job and get to become a professor. And eventually, you know, I wrote the Bitcoin standard in order to keep my job because I was running behind because I wasn't publishing because I had, you know, I was reading about Bitcoin rather than publishing in silly academic journals that nobody reads. And it's turned out to be a very smart decision. So then I couldn't write anything that would be published in an academic journal. So I just went ahead and wrote a book about Bitcoin. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll self-publish it or I'll publish it in an academic journal. But it ended up uh, in an academic publisher to help me keep my job. And an academic publisher ended up taking it. But in retrospect, you know, I didn't write it because I wanted it to be an academic book. I wrote it just because I wanted to write and because I needed to just explain what I thought about Bitcoin rather than try and fit it into other people's mold. So I'm afraid... Yeah. My answer is uh, the exact opposite of what you wanted the, the, my approach is to just not try to reach out to people just say what I want and they'll hear it when they're ready and uh, they're not gonna hear it when they're not ready and uh,
1: that probably makes you more relatable though to the <laughs> to the group of people that are able to like really digest your work
0: exactly um, I, I, it becomes a, an acquired taste which I'm happy yeah with. <laughs>
1: here here's uh here's another question do you consider yourself a researcher or a publisher, or excuse me, a, a author, a journalist, a content creator? Do you also consider yourself a researcher?
0: I'd say so, yeah.
1: Yeah. That's what I think, too. So I've been thinking recently, I'm not sure if you saw, but there was some discussion on Twitter about whether or not the right discussions about security are happening in Bitcoin. I don't know if you saw this, but this was last week in Anyway, I've been thinking a lot about it because in my world, working with the companies that I work with, we're talking about security, including at the protocol level, like basically all the time. And it was interesting to me to see that people on Twitter felt like in Bitcoin, those conversations weren't happening because they are just maybe they're not happening on Twitter. And so anyhow, what that led me to is this question around how we're funding work in the space. So if my job is to fund founders and entrepreneurs and there's funding going into open source developments or to back open source developers on Bitcoin Core, I started wondering and really, you know, thinking, questioning about if there was enough funding of open source researchers in the space that were publishing on some of these hard questions around security and incentives, specifically for public consumption. Because even though I know that the companies and the open source developers are having these discussions, it feels like there's an appetite for that on a public forum like Twitter. And I just, you know, wonder if we have the infrastructure there to fund that type of work. I don't know if you have an opinion about that or not, but given the sort of work that you do, I I thought that I would bring that up to you because I frankly would like to see more funding for research and, and open publication.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I've personally decided that, you know, after I left my university job, I decided that my model was going to be uh, by going directly to readers. I've basically not raised any money since the beginning because I thought the most valuable thing I need is uh, feedback from consumers because I'm building something that's very new. There, There aren't, as far as I know, other professors out there who left their job and are just teaching courses online. Yeah. And so but how um, you know, Bitcoin. could we do
1: that, though? So there, there should be yeah. more work happening. So I don't know. Do you remember that I come from academia also? So I was on a track to be, do you remember this? So I yeah, totally I get the broken it. publishing model, and I just thought I couldn't stomach it for as long as you did. And my colleague at the firm also comes from an academic background, like a bad academic, right? Someone like that got off, off track. But anyway, people in academia should be researching Bitcoin and publishing on Bitcoin, on Lightning Network, on all of these sorts of questions. But there's not the community or funding yet for people to do the research. But I imagine that, and you know, a lot of the research will be bad, like it is in, you know, in academia and other subjects. But a lot, some of the research will be good or great. And to give people the incentive to build a career in academia by researching Bitcoin, Lightning Network, whatever it is, mining, I would love to see that. And I'm not sure that I understand like how to generate momentum towards that, but it's something that's top of mind on my team right now. And I just, I was wondering if you had been thinking about it.
0: I I would think something like this would ideally be done outside of academia, because if you're uh, if you have uh, the intention of doing this and you take it to an academic institution, you're just signing up 10x the amount of headaches and one tenth the amount of output. It's just you're going to have to you're going to have to go run through the bureaucracy. And then the bureaucracy, of course, I mean, this is all running on fiat. So you're going to face hostility at every step along the way that's going to make it, I would say, difficult to build a proper Bitcoin presence. Plus, you know, the, the, the problem with doing it is that you're kind of tied in with what the university is doing itself. So there are... In terms of what you can say, what you can't say, in terms of the what you can research, the university has a much bigger uh, benefactor than you could ever be. Yeah. In the U.S. Uh, in in the U.S. government and their subsidized loans and so on. So, I think it would you know you know the saying don't plant your tree in somebody else's garden. Yeah. If I were if, if if I were to advise you, I'd say do something like this independently and i think there are a lot of great researchers in bitcoin you know there are a lot of people writing great research yeah. on twitter posting it for free on medium there's a lot that we few, could please. be
1: so here's here's a dynamic i'm worried about there's very little funding for bitcoin researchers and also it's short-term funding and coming from academia you know that that's very difficult to get your best work because then you have the burden of worrying about where that your next grant is coming from. Right. And so if we have these nine month long or like, you know, even shorter, but maybe like in the best case scenario, year long grants for four or five people, it just feels like, Anyhow, I'm just throwing the topic out there to you because we've been discussing it we, and we feel like there's such incredible work happening inside companies that to have, you know, a, a, an open dialogue between the work happening inside those companies and this sort of open source research that you have kind of done. I, and I, I know that you think of yourself not primarily probably as a research, that's probably, you know, this a secondary definition you would apply to your work. But anyhow, it would be really lovely to see, you know, a robust research open source community yeah. develop. If you progress that idea in any way, let me know because no, it's the I topic don't. of current Current, um, I, I, I definitely,
0: uh, I definitely would be very interested in taking part in something like this. I think perhaps the, uh, you know, rather than kind of focusing on these short grants, uh, the focus should be on, uh, somebody in a position to or not somebody you want to have several people you don't want this to turn into a one person operation but you want to have several people that are in a position to essentially curating a team of researchers to work on particular topics so that uh, it's not you know let's hire one person and then they do this and then they publish a report and uh, they move on but that there's a person who hires four or five people to work on something over a long period of time yeah Uh, exactly yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's an enormous number of people that are doing a lot of research for free. So there's, uh, yes. you know, it, it it wouldn't take much to find very good quality research and to support enough to make it at the professional level and then to build on top of it.
1: So we'll follow up on that as we advance that thinking. Um, here's another interesting dynamic kind of related. I wonder if you've thought about this before. So in most tech communities in everything outside of Bitcoin, the way the community grows is that when people gain wealth and resources and success, they put much of that back into the community. So an example of this that's really popular and discussed is the PayPal mafia, right? So they they created this incredible business. They all got wealthy. They all put it back into one another's companies and into other founders in the early, you know, tech and social networking ecosystem. In Bitcoin, but they they were selling a depreciating asset, right? So they were selling fiat currency to back these companies. In Bitcoin, it's different. And so when people gain wealth in Bitcoin, this is sort of not discussed much, but it's an interesting, you know, detail of the community that we have to think about because of our work. When people gain great wealth in Bitcoin, they aren't redeploying it into development in the space at the same rate that other tech communities are and in contrast in the where in the crypto space where they also are also sort of sitting on either depreciating assets or a house of cards and so they you know they don't have the same um, pressure or motivation to huddle their money they're deploying that back into those ecosystems so that an entrepreneurial community is being built and really critical sort of like stakeholders and in infrastructure is better resourced. But on the Bitcoin side, we don't have that same dynamic. And so this I relate this to the research discussion, because if we have just come to the point where we're sort of properly or adequately funding the open source core developers, you know, Is there enough money from people in the space to also fund open source research, researchers, or even to redeploy into startups building in the space? And these startups are very important, right? Not that I have to make this pitch to you or to your audience, but startups in the space drive adoption and they help expand utility. And I mean, even basic utility, for instance, you know, the last investment we made, I don't know if you saw this or not, but was in a company called Hoseki, that offers proof of reserve software, so that you can huddle your Bitcoin and also access a mortgage or prove your creditworthiness. Just you know, to say it more simply. So, anyhow, all of this is important, and I just wonder how our community holding this appreciating asset that you know is is secure and knowable, right? Where we know the rules, we know that they won't change. All of that. If that incentivizes, you know. Also bad behavior and that people or, or potentially maladoptive behavior and that people aren't funding to the degree that they should be research and and, you know, these sort of projects in the startup space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, what are your thoughts on the issues of sanctions and KYC and all of that? Do you see that as becoming a headache for your business? You know, recently in the last couple of weeks, there was a sanction on something called Tornado Cash, which is a mixture for Ethereum. It seems to carry significant implications and the way that it operates and particularly with the hard fork. Let's say on the one hand, founders of the Bitcoin companies that you deal with. And then on the other hand, the investors who might start Becoming a little antsy about whether they're going to get into trouble over any of this?
1: The investor side, no. So first uh, point on Tornado Cash and Ethereum, I think that what Ethereum has done is really interesting because in addition to not sort of prioritizing decentralization, they have communicated and promoted to their community that decentralization is important. That's different from Solana, who I think is you know, targeting Ethereum and wants to compete with Ethereum and might be the underdog now, has the advantage of not really having promoted the value of decentralization to their community. So Ethereum is in a really difficult spot because they've told their community that decentralization is absolutely critical and they are decentralized while at the same time not applying those principles to how they develop the technology or the the incentives that secure the technology. So anyhow, it's, it's interesting to see this play out. This was also predictable. It wasn't, the timing wasn't predictable, but the fact that there would be this friction at some point was predictable. On the Bitcoin side, the question around regulation is one really for founders. The context is what sort of audience you want to serve. And so in some conditions, having KYC available um, or integrated with your product might make sense. If you're working with you know, a certain type of investing group or a certain population, and of course, if you want to go broad, then building or tacking your product in a way that, that KYC, AML measures aren't required or necessary, or even sort of um, possible, they're complex questions. But for most companies, it's really just a question about what your user group is and how you scale. Investors are less worried about that, and it's because the rules, the rules, have become more clear. And the tech has sort of become um, more knowable because we have this 10- plus year history of knowing how Bitcoin behaves and how the developer community considers trade-offs in the tech. With those two things matched up, both an understanding of the regulatory environment and an understanding of the tech, the sort of risks and trade-offs of de- deciding whether to be aggressively um, regulation compliant or to build a tech in the way that makes that inconsistent with what you can even do, it's it's possible to do these things now. And so we worry a lot less about it than we would have had to worry about it in 2017, Said.
2: All right. Well, Peter has a question for you. Uh, hi, Elise. I wanted to ask about your view on trends in the Bitcoin industry. So... Given that you're a venture capitalist, you have a bird's eye view of what's happening across lots of different companies, and you make your investment decisions on that basis. And I wonder whether you have any trends that the industry is undergoing that you can share, in particular, any that you think that other people aren't noticing at the moment.
1: So something really important that's been happening in the Bitcoin space that's unique to Bitcoin amongst other cryptocurrencies is that we're starting to see this really tight feedback loop between adoption and infrastructure development. And so what I mean by that is that we can look at how users are using the tech, how they're engaging with the technology, the application infrastructure. We can discern from the KPIs created there or from qualitative feedback, so either from the data or what users are saying. We can understand you know, what would better serve their needs or make the experience less frictionful. This might be a little controversial, but to give you an example of this, when El Salvador adopted Bitcoin in September of last year, all of the economic activity that happened there, all the actual exchange of Bitcoin for goods was, of course, happening on Lightning Network and primarily on Lightning Labs, l implementation of Lightning Network. And so what we saw from that activity was, I'm sure, obvious to this group is that people were using the airdrop, the $30 airdrop to get things that they needed that they otherwise couldn't afford or to have like that one treat for their family. And so there wasn't the sort. And so just to give me an example, this would be like using the $30 airdrop at the pharmacy or for groceries. And on the flip side, you know, to secure a treat for their family, like going to pizza hut, pizza hut was one of the big beneficiaries of the $30 airdrop. Now this showed sort of like a more immediate sort of desire to spend the money and I think this is than we would see in other populations, and I think the reason for that is that people don't have the wealth in El Salvador to tolerate Bitcoin's short term volatility. So, I want to say again, I understand this is very controversial, but if you are making $400 a month and your expenses are between $420 a month and $380 a month, Bitcoin's volatility is you know really like a luxury. That you can't afford. And so the feedback from that sort of experiment in El Salvador was that the Lightning Network and Bitcoin blockchain are technologies that are absolutely necessary in El Salvador to get people banked. And even, and I had always thought of this as a way to interact with the global economy or or e-commerce, for example, but really people even needed this to, to interact with like their corner store. So it even created a better experience for that. But The volatility was a problem. And so from that, we see the emergence of tarot, which will allow stable coins to trade on Lightning Network so that, this is how I interpret this, so that poor people that need access to Lightning Network in order to be able to spend efficiently without getting charged by intermediaries – aggressively charged by intermediaries, tarot and US dollars on Lightning Network allows them to access Lightning Network without needing to tolerate Bitcoin's volatility. So this is an example of the really, really tight adoption feedback loop. Bitcoin has an advantage here because we don't have this sort of forced-in token like other cryptocurrencies do. And so when the tech is adopted, when the Bitcoin apps are adopted, we can actually look at the data and understand how people are, you know, applying the product to their daily lives. Other trends we're thinking about. So what we're doing right now is we're asking ourselves the question of how could Bitcoin look different in 2026? And sort of translating those into trends. So here's a couple of things, here's a couple of questions for everyone to ask themselves. If Bitcoin is a million dollars a coin in 2026, what sort of tools and services will we need different than what we have today? And so the company I mentioned, Hoseki, is an example of this, I think. If Bitcoin is a million dollars in 2026, and we still expect it to continue appreciating, being able to prove your creditworthiness based on your Bitcoin stack is going to be important, especially for younger folks, right? Like millennials or Gen Z who have been stacking stats versus accumulating wealth in another form which is harder to do. So that's one question. We're also looking at the activity happening in various countries in Africa where adoption is happening at a higher rate and there's really strong developer communities so that things can be built locally that are relevant for a population that has you know a more acute need for Bitcoin. We're looking at Lightning Network as having a chance by 2026 to really have hit you know, the scale that it has the potential to serve. And then finally, we're looking at what happens when you have, you know, dollars on Lightning Network, so that poor people can use Bitcoin tech without be exposed to Bitcoin's volatility. So those are a few of the, we're not, I'm not thinking about it as trends, which, you know, I think implies a current sort of environment. We're thinking about it as, you know, looking ahead a few years and then anticipating the needs Of how things could be different then. One final thing I want to say that kind of indirectly answers your question is that the trends, Bitcoin trends, are more important for founders outside of the space than entrepreneurs in the space today. And the reason why is because if every company is becoming a fintech company, then these technologies that allow you to have global transaction capabilities instantly free 24-7 a day, you know, are going to give you a competitive advantage. And so I think that trends like Lightning Network and the future introduction of Tarot Protocol create tailwinds for all founders in 2022, 2023, similar to what mobile and cloud did in two thousand and eight.
0: Yeah, I I tend to agree. I think the introduction of stablecoins on Lightning Network is a huge, huge, huge development. We had uh, Paolo Ardoino from Tether here before and we were discussing it. And I think, you know, currently the transaction fees, because they use blockchains that can't scale, you can't really move stablecoins very cheap. It has to be like half a dollar or a dollar and sometimes $10 or something like that. If you can get that down to Lightning Network transaction fees, and you get some liquidity on the network, it's, it's going to eat everything else because it's, yeah. it, it's the same platform where you can buy your coffee next door and you can send money to um, halfway around the world uh, with the same price. And it's just it's you know it's it, it's going to be a no brainer for most people to download it in the developing world where their local currencies yeah. are uh, being butchered and. Uh, with that, I think it's just going to take off almost like WhatsApp. I think yeah, uh, it's exactly, to its WhatsApp moment at some point. And uh, it's just going to be the perfect uh, gateway drug to Bitcoin.
1: Exactly. So that's the point is that tarot, US dollars and lightning network, end up putting a Bitcoin wallet, a lightning wallet on everyone's phone in developing markets. And so it's an incredible Trojan horse and also, you know, frankly, a really respectful way to introduce Bitcoin to people that acutely need it.
0: Very true. What, um, Lynn is asking in the chat, uh, do you see a difference in the types of Bitcoin companies being established in developed versus developing countries?
1: Okay, so a difference in the type of companies in developed economies versus... Yes, so we want to be investing in developing economies we have. So one of our recent investments was in the company that led merchant infrastructure adoption in El Salvador, which is Ibex Mercado. You're probably very familiar with this group. Um, This is a team that comes from Guatemala. And it really sort of illustrates the truth that talent is evenly distributed, even if it's generally not evenly resourced. So here's the thing. These I've worked with thousands, I've met with thousands and thousands of founders over my past decade in venture capital. And the Ibex Mercado team from El Salvador is easily top 5% of folks that I've met over that decade. Now, in addition to just being talented founders and native Bitcoin thinkers, they have the local knowledge of how people will use Lightning Network in Central America and in that, in those developing markets. And so, you know, when we have an opportunity to discover a team like that, we're really excited to back them. Now, the difficulty, of course, is that without actually being in those markets, we, you know, the discovery is harder. And so, you know, in El Salvador, it was sort of easier to find Ibex Mercado because what we did was we looked at, at the shape adoption took there, And then at the tech that proved itself to be scalable, we took that as an indication of the quality of the team and then started diving in. And so it was like a little hack about how to sort of work well in a market that we didn't have, um, you know, like a headquarter in. But we're hoping to continue to do that and to sort of like replicate the work we did in El Salvador and finding and backing Ibex with other companies, both in, in LATAM, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, these are all regions that we've been exploring. And if, if the question included, like, what's different, I'll, I'll make just this one quick note. What's different about teams building in those economies is a local understanding of how the communities will want to use the tech. Probably a better ability to interpret the data that you get from an early product launch. So what's important when you're introducing a new product in any market is to quickly ingest and interpret the data. And companies that are native to these regions, I think, have um, a leg up on others, a, a, an advantage in being able to interpret the feedback they get.
0: Excellent. Andre has a question for you. Hello. Do you find that uh, people who have uh, founded Bitcoin startups are more honest, start working different than the normal kind of people that you find approaching you for venture capitalism or is it or is it just the same um like my question would be do you find the general bitcoining community to be different than your normal VC uh,
2: people that would approach you
1: so i think what's different and unifying about bitcoin founders is that there's sort of this long-term thinking that we've talked about prior in the discussion and so If you were thinking in the short term for how to produce the quickest return into cash out and buy your yacht, you're probably not thinking about building a company where the exit is based off of the accrual of enterprise or equity value. A token, selling a token is a quick way to do that. So, At the very least, what we know about Bitcoin founders is that they have a long-term vision for how to create and um, capture value and, and product leads there versus you know, a a drive for simple ROI. What's really exciting about the Bitcoin space is that many founders are mission-driven. In addition to wanting to build a big company, they also want to produce change and advance culture in some meaningful way, meaningful to them. And founders that have, you know, a a target, not just to produce wealth for themselves and their, their families, but also to produce change are some of you know, sort of like the most dedicated, the most, you know, courageous, sort of like thick skinned and resilient founders. And so, and you've probably seen this in the Bitcoin space. So, founders in the Bitcoin space are better prepared and have a greater appetite to get through hard times. All startups have hard times, there's no exceptions to this. And Bitcoin founders tend to, those that are mission driven, have more resiliency to those hard times because there's a greater gain for them at the end than than the simple wealth generation.
0: Excellent. All right, and we have another question from Peter.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on something Alise was saying there about El Salvador and the IBEX Mercado um, payments processing uh, investment that you have there. So, as someone who's involved in venture capital, you have to. <clears throat> come up with base cases for what you expect Bitcoin adoption to look like in terms of like percentages of, of growth and how that will impact the, um, the revenues of the companies that you're investing in like IBEX. Um, so I just wonder whether you could share with us what needs to happen in places like El Salvador for your investments to um, to uh, yield profit, basically. So can you describe like what a five year timeline for development looks like?
1: Sure. So I think, so investing at the early stage is a bit different than doing late stage investing. So just to rewind quickly, historically I've done everything from first check into companies all the way to last check pre IPO investments. At Stillmark though, with fund one, we're focused on early stage. So that would be pre seed, seed, and series A. And really what we're looking for at that stage is strong teams, good decision makers in growing markets that have a sort of native understanding of Bitcoin technology so that they can be building in a way that's consistent with the tech. So nothing needs to happen in El Salvador for IBEX to succeed. Instead, what needs to happen is for the team, the IBEX leadership team, to be good judges of the market, of how adoption is taking shape, and to discern user feedback so that the product remains agile and responsive to the way that Bitcoin grows. And the way, specifically for Ibex Mercado, the way that Lightning Network is used to facilitate transactions. What do merchants and companies that receive transactions need to do to prepare for a world in which people are using Lightning Network to transmit payment? So if Ibex Mercado can be a good judge of that, and then a good representation of their product, that's really what they need in order to appreciate the equity value of their company. It doesn't need to be in El Salvador, but if it were in El Salvador, I think what needs to happen is exactly what I talked about before, which is that not just IBEX, but the folks developing infrastructure protocol beneath what IBEX has built are responsive to user feedback from El Salvador then that will put IBEX in a position to have, you know, a a ready set sort of user group in the merchants that they served in late 2021 when people were really, you know, in the height of spending their BTC airdrop. Does that answer your question, Peter?
2: Yeah, that's helpful. So you don't really have then a kind of broader macro view that scenario that relies on companies like IBEX succeeding. It's based on other metrics, is it?
1: No, we, we do, but at a, at a company level, we don't take the helm, nor do we. So we're. I'm happy to be wrong about all of my predictions on the trends. And if I am wrong, then I need to make sure that we've backed founders that can see where the field is moving before we do. And steer their companies accordingly. So, w- what I tend to think is that Lightning Network, although I'm happy to be wrong about this, is that Lightning Network is li- likely to be adopted in developing markets first and with a higher penetration rate than you'll see in emerging, excuse me, in developed economies. This is a reason why backing a team that originates from a developing market gives us an advantage. However, we could be wrong about that, and Ibex could still become you know, a multi-billion dollar company because they were able to be agile as the trends um, unfolded and as greater data was available to them. But one of the reasons why we backed Ibex instead of one of their competitors is because they came from an emerging markets, had those existing relationships with enterprises and, and merchants, like the company receiver side of a transaction. And we expected that Lightning Network would be most broadly adopted in those types of regions first. And the reason is because of the high population of underbanked people in those regions. This opportunity to sort of like leapfrog financial technologies in developing markets because you're not sort of, you know, replacing people's credit cards, right? These people don't have credit cards. So you're just giving them a way to spend with, you know, the ease of a credit or debit card, even in lieu of them actually having that resource. So you're allowing them to skip over intermediaries, basically, is what I'm saying. And for that reason, we we expect Lightning Network to be adopted there first in a robust way. And by first, by the way, I mean after Bitcoiners adopt it. So when normal people that don't have full-time jobs in Bitcoin start using the tech and the products, we expect to see that where there's the most acute need.
2: Thank you.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. This has been enormously informative and I'm sure all of the attendees and the listeners will uh, really enjoy this. And I hope we get to do it again sometime.
1: You're wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to chat with you. And I hope to see you again soon, maybe in person.
0: I hope so too. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.